So thank you all for coming. This is a special episode of Money Concepts. We usually meet on Sundays, but this time uh, we have a special guest. His name is Jimmy Sunny. Uh, Jimmy has written two books. Uh, his first book was about uh, Claude Shannon, uh, the famous scientist, uh, the, the guy who discovered uh, uh, information theory. That book is called A Mind at Play. And uh, his second book is called The Founders, which uh, was re released very recently. Uh, it's about the founding of this company called PayPal, which we are all familiar with. And it's not just about PayPal, it's also about life in Silicon Valley during the early years of the internet and the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust and all that. Uh, so I've read both both of his books and they're, they're wonderful books. The, the thing I really like about Jimmy is that he's super meticulous in his research. So if, if you want to write a book about the early history of the internet and the founding of a company like PayPal, there's so many people who have played a major role in, in this company. And so there's Elon Musk and there's Peter Thiel, there's David Sachs, there's Reid Hoffman, Max Levchin. There's like so many people who have played a key role. And these are all famous people today. So you, you have to meet all of them. You have to get interviews with all of them. Uh, you have to read everything that they've written. You have to go through all the speeches that they have given. Uh, you have to read tons and tons of emails from early uh, company records. You have to talk to investors. You have to talk to board members. You have to talk to present and past employees. And then once you have all this information uh, at your fingertips, you sort of have to um, internalize all of it and weave it into a gripping story, a cohesive narrative. You know, so that it's not just a bunch of isolated facts, but it's all uh, telling a beautiful story at the end of the day. And so writing a book like this involves so much of research and uh, putting it together involves so much effort. And Jimmy has done an absolutely masterful job on, on both his books, the book about Claude Shannon and this book about PayPal, but especially this, uh, this book about PayPal, the, the founders, I, I, I think he's just uh, done such a wonderful job uh, writing this book. And we as investors, so this is, this is an investing show, it's all about money concepts. We can learn a lot from this book. Uh, so I, I love to read business biographies, um, if, if only to remind ourselves that you know, businesses are not just about financial statements and spreadsheets. It's all about people, the kinds of abilities different people have, what interests they have, what motivates them, what kinds of incentives they have, how they work with others to create value. How at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a team of people developing a product that customers want to use. That's what creates value in wonderful businesses. And so just by going through this book, there are so many concepts that we, we come across. So one, one, one simple concept is viral marketing. So how, how powerful can viral marketing be in helping a company succeed? Uh, you know, how, how startups work, uh, how, how the basic financial plumbing works, because PayPal is a, is a financial technology company. So how, how does the basic financial infrastructure of the country work? And how, how does the IPO process work? 
what, what are network effects when when you have two different companies and they are both going after the same market share how do the competitive dynamics how do they play out you know what what are the kinds of tensions that exist between board members and management there's just so much uh, that we can learn uh, from this book and uh, jim jimmy makes uh, does a wonderful job at not just telling the story of paypal but also weaving in all these different concepts that are super important for people uh, like us who want to understand businesses so that we can invest in them uh, so so uh, jimmy uh, do, do you just want to say a few words before we get started yeah i mean thank you for that <laughs> that amazing introduction um honestly i'm i'm glad this isn't a video podcast cuz people would see my my go- the goofy smile i've had for the last couple minutes um but i i really appreciate that that introduction you know this was a long project all the work you described took place over five and a half years and especially early on you know you don't know if you're going to have anything of real value in some sense right um you have interviews and you're starting to look at old youtube videos and you know you think there's a narrative here but how are you ever going to get to these people and who's going to let you knock on their door and talk to them for hours and hours and then little by little it starts to come together it was just i was part of why i was smiling was i was listening to you describe it and i think if i had heard that description of what it took at the beginning of the project I'm not sure I actually would have gone through with it, right? Um because it was it was a long long process and and I think people will see the end product but just to give you data to back that up, you know, I wrote around 450,000 words of draft material. The final book is 170,000 or so. And so, I mean like so sort of 300,000ish little under words are not included in the book meaning there's so many stories i did all of these interviews and there's so much good stuff in the interviews that didn't make it into the book um right. but i what i mean to say is a long way of saying thank you for that very kind very generous introduction and you know i'm ho- i'm hopeful that some of what's in the book can help people understand business for sure because part of what i had to do as somebody who has not built a startup was really try to rigorously understand some of these concepts and then explain them. I also think that from the perspective of what you do and what your listeners are here for, you know, this is a a company that in so many ways built the template for modern startup entrepreneurship. And so a lot of the things that they pioneered are you see them everywhere now, but they didn't exist in 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001 and 2002 when this company was getting started. And so I think it's a useful way to to think about business and to think about money and you know what makes these things tick. Um but I'm also happy as you know to to talk about anything and I just really appreciate the very very kind introduction. Absolutely, absolutely. And what what you say is absolutely true that uh, most uh, are a lot of technologies that we just take for granted today uh, they they would not have existed uh, if if not for paypal and uh, you 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 do a beautiful job of 
telling the story of how these various technologies evolved. So what, what was the problem these guys were trying to solve and how did these uh, technologies evolve as a response to that? So we, we, can, we can start right there uh, if you like. So uh, for, for example, there, there is this uh, uh, bank account verification, right? So, uh, uh, so, so if, if someone says, okay, I, I own this particular bank account, how do you know whether they are telling the truth? Do, do they really own that bank account or not? Can you send money to that bank account and um, will, will these guys, uh, will, will that person get it? Do they really own that bank account or not? A simple verification process like that. Uh, so these days we are very, very familiar with, with the um, way companies do it, which is basically they send two uh, deposits to our bank account. And then we have to tell them what those deposits were. And that's how you verify that the account is yours. But this did not exist at, at that time. And so th this was a completely new innovation. And this innovation was brought about by somebody at PayPal. Um, do, do you want to tell that story of how, how this innovation came to be? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll connect it to something you said in the introduction that's super important. And I think it's important for people who pay attention to business, but also people who write about business. You know, as you said, these are very human endeavors. Right, we, we tend to look at business from the outside in, in a somewhat sterile way. We look at numbers, we look at charts, we look at the day's activity, but you forget that there's just a big group of people figuring these things out along the way. Um, and so my book was, a, was an explicit attempt at capturing some of that humanity. The human being that's behind the innovation you just described, which is referred to and referred today as random deposit, is a gentleman named Sanjay Bhargava. Both Sanjay and his wife, Anita, work at the company. And he's hired very, very early on by Elon Musk. And I'll actually tell the story just briefly of, of how he got hired, because it's a great, it's a great story. Um, Sanjay had had a long life in banking, had been a success, and he wanted to do a startup. He did a startup, it didn't quite work out, but he, got, he attracted the attention of some venture capitalists, including Mike Moritz, who was who is, is at Sequoia now, was at Sequoia then, and was investing in Elon's, what was then called X.com. It's like one half of the company that became PayPal. He says, Sanjay, you should really meet Elon. Elon's doing some work in finance. You know, you two can, and they, he puts him in email contact. And Sanjay, you know, is fresh off a, a difficult startup experience and says to, to Elon in his reply to his email, he says, hey, you know, in the next time I'm, I'm in your area, I'll come, I'll come see you. And Elon says, no, 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 you have to come right away. We're building our team. So he says, I'll send it, you know, he sends a ticket, he, he flies up. And Sanjay is planning on a few minutes of a meeting at eight o'clock at night at a burger joint called Taxi's Hamburgers in Palo Alto. And he and Elon, you know, per Sanjay's recollection, basically chat from 8 a.m. to 4 a.m. about the financial system. And then at 4 a.m. they finish says, can you come in at seven to get your offer letter? And so right away, Sanjay gets the feeling like, wow, this is going to be very different than my previous life in banking. And so he, he joins as a very early employee in this company called X.com. He actually, um, funny, I didn't write this in the book. He starts out on a trial basis. He's skeptical that, you know, this guy, Elon Musk, who's super young, has very limited banking experience, is actually going to build something of worth. And Elon, funny enough, looks at Sanjay and says, look, I don't want you to be one of these people that's like super experienced in banking and comes in and tells me, oh, we can't do this for these five reasons. So they're both a little skeptical of the other. But in, the, 
in the end, Sanjay joins. He he passes his trial. He people that his experience gives him a lot of credibility. It also allows him to spot places in the financial system where things need improving. One of the things that happens to X.com early on is that people connect their bank accounts to X.com, but there's some security loopholes. It causes them some negative press. Sanjay has to figure out one of the things that he's thinking about is how do you make sure that when you connect your bank account, you're actually the person that owns that account? That's not like an easy to solve problem, right? Just having a checking account number and a routing number is insufficient. If you just have those two, you can get those off of a voided check. So he starts to think about this and he's actually reading a book called Secrets and Lies, which is a, a book by like an IT specialist and a uh, IT analyst and specialist named Bruce Schneider or Schneier. And he's thinking about that. He's reading this book and he's thinking about signals and noise. And what he said to me, as he recalled it, was he said, you know, we needed a signal that was different than having to fill out a form and mail it back to the company, because that would have taken weeks and we wouldn't have been able to sign people up quickly. So he starts to think, like, what if the company just sent you two deposits, 25 cents and four cents, and your code is 2504? It's just like an ATM code, a four-digit PIN code. And he says this offhandedly to a colleague of his, Todd Pearson. And right away, Todd looks at him and says, Sanjay, you're a genius. We have to do that. They go back to the office. Sanjay kind of presents the idea there. And the work to make it a reality happens very, very quickly. And I actually was lucky enough to find the announcement of random deposit in the company newsletter when they announced that it's live. And there's this great line from David Sachs at the very end when he's announcing it. He says, it's an idea that, like Velcro, you wish you had thought of. I thought of it. I wrote a lot about it. I really found Sanjay to be this the most extraordinary character. And to me, it was a quintessential example of what this company was trying to do. It also represented one of the things that they created that lasted a very, very long time. Because I suspect that in some way, shape, or form, everyone listening has had to do a version of that. And you can, you know, you can credit that invention to PayPal. Right, exactly. So what, what they did in those days to solve one specific problem is what we are using. And that that is a, the history behind these random trial deposits that, that are all over the place now. And just this one answer that you gave, uh, just look at the amount of detail, the, the wealth of detail that you had to research to to be able to delve into this one invention of PayPal. You had to look up this guy, Sanjay Bhargava. You have to figure out how exactly, who introduced Sanjay to Elon Musk. Everything from who bought the plane ticket to the name of the restaurant where they first met and what they ate when they when they met. And, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the book that Sanjay was reading, which gave him uh, this idea about signals and noise and who wrote that book, just... Think about how much research has to go into that uh, to be able to just give give out this answer like this. And it, well, this it, is yeah. what I love about the book. Every <laughs> single thing is so meticulously researched. It, it's a masterpiece, I'm telling you. I'm, I'm glad you like it. I think my what's funny is, as you said it, I was sort of laughing because my friends grew very tired of hearing these stories, right? Uh, like I'd find these stories and I thought they were super interesting to me but they weren't especially interesting to other people. So I'm glad to have the chance to share them in this format. What, I, what I'll say, let me, let me offer a couple of reflections on what you just said. 
Um, because, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. We've communicated on Twitter about Claude Shannon. You know, I, I think that the virtue of long projects, the virtue of a project that takes five and a half years, you know, is the ability to sit with it every single day for that period and dive into the details. So I'll give you a couple examples from a story we just talked about. One is actually that Sanjay and Anita live in India and I live in the United States. And so when I emailed, the first thing is I didn't know if I'd get a response, I did. The second is they both worked at the company so I wanted to talk to both of them. The problem was the time difference. And I can still remember and somewhat embarrassingly admit, we started our interview like 9.30 Eastern time so that it was an appropriate hour in India. But I had to interview both of them. And I go to bed very, very, very early and get up very early. And so I did my back-to-back -back interview with Sanjay and Anita Bhargava and we talked for like three hours. So it's like midnight, it's like 12.30 my time in the, in the late at night and I'm exhausted, like trying to make sure that I capture all these details. But I knew that it would be, you know, it'd be hard to coordinate calls and, and whatnot. I'll add one other detail on this, onto this, which is, you know, one of the things that Elon did that he never really got appropriate credit for was he recruited people like Sanjay. Sanjay was brilliant. I mean, and still is brilliant. He's not, I'm saying in the past tense, he still is brilliant. And I, Elon has a real keen sense for this kind of intelligence, this sort of very specific kind of problem solving intelligence. And in my interview with Elon, he said to me, he's like, Sanjay, he just raved about Sanjay uh, and still does to this day. That, you know, he describes that solution, random deposit, as fundamental to PayPal's success. Others have too. And, and I, I think that I wanted to dive into that level of detail because I was led there by even the people who ran the company. You have to imagine that I'm talking to Elon 20 years after PayPal. And even 20 years after PayPal, he can tell me chapter and verse how important random deposit was and why it was so vital for me to talk to Sanjay. So part of the detail was just my own obsession with finding every little nook and cranny and looking up to see that Taxi ham Taxi's Hamburgers was a real place in Palo Alto and that it was in fact open 24 hours a day and where the address was and what the cross streets were. And, you know, and then part of the detail was that I was led there by people who lived this story and said, hey, you should talk to Sanjay. I, I don't think that maybe they anticipated that I would th then go and like, you know, track him down right away, speak to him for three hours, find old emails, but mostly nudged in certain directions by the people who created the company. And I was really grateful for those nudges because it gave me at least a place to start. I wasn't starting from a blank sheet of paper. Right, exactly. And you, you, you remind me of uh, this Colombo, the Detective Colombo, the, the show, where the, the guy goes back and looks at every single detail. Um, you know, if, if someone said they had dinner at a particular restaurant, you, you go and verify that the restaurant is actually open at that time. <laughs> Cross-checking every, every little detail like this. That is just amazing. You, you, know, you know, part of the reason why, and this is actually going to sound a little odd, when you dive into the details, it, it often, like, you know, I grew up, like, playing and loving computers, and it felt always like I was double-clicking on a folder, and then nested within that folder were, like, five other folders, and I would double-click on those folders, and I would find something new. And so I'll give you an example. There was a young engineer who passed away while he was working at PayPal. He didn't pass away because of the job or anything. He just he passed away during his period of working there. 
And I was given his name. And I remember being given his name and thinking, huh, that's so interesting. This is probably for a lot of these people, their first real experience of death. They're all in their 20s. This colleague they have is there one minute. He's gone the next. It's very tragic death. It made the front page of the Stanford paper. So the first thing I did was I went and looked up the Stanford daily archives and I found the paper. They've digitized all their archives. So I was like, well, that's easy. I can go read his obituary. And then I remember thinking to myself, like, hmm, you know, if someone that young dies, like that affects their parents, like their parents. I'm a I'm a young father. If my God forbid my daughter passed away, it'd be one of the biggest events of my life. I would think about it for the rest of my life. I mean, it would it'd be searing. It'd be a jarring experience. So I thought to myself, like, what could I do? Maybe the family would want their son and his story honored by putting him in the book and, and learning what he did. And I contacted Bob Frezza, that's the engineer's name, his father. And his father wrote me back. And then his father said, uh, he sort of wrote this note to me saying, I was really, first of all, I was really like, kind of like my, you took my breath away when you, when I got the note, cause I haven't had anybody reach out. Um, and then I was really touched that somebody would actually want to talk to me. We ended up starting a correspondence and he shared all of his son's emails from his time working at the company. And so I had this incredible archive of what the company meant to this very young engineer. I mean, I, don't, I think Bob was 21 when he passed away. And so every time I clicked on a detail, more details came to light. And I didn't know at the time, like, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to like take all these random things and string them together? But I, I kind of had a sense that like the more details I had, the less this story became, you know, like the Elon and Peter show, right? Because a lot of these right. books, like particularly around like the big companies and the big names, all your, the temptation is always to write sort of like the Gates, the Bill Gates version of the Microsoft story, the Steve Jobs version of the Apple story. Right. But you miss something if you do it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So an, another example is Pay, PayPal is one of the first companies to uh, use viral marketing in their uh, in, in their uh, uh, quest for uh, to acquire more customers. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about uh, how these guys stumbled upon the idea of viral marketing, who, whose idea it was, and what was their approach to it, what twists they added on top of it, and how it helped them dominate over the other competitors that were there at the time, also trying to target the same space. Yeah, it's it's a big key to their success. And the story of how both companies thought about and learned about viral marketing is super interesting. To take a step back, PayPal is really the, by, the, the creation of, of two merged companies. One company was founded, co-founded by Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. That company was first called Fieldlink, then it was called Confinity, and then eventually it changed its name to PayPal. PayPal was a product created by Confinity. The other company was called X.com, and it was founded by Elon Musk. So you have these two companies, and they have two very different ideas for what they're going to do. Confinity is going to do mobile money beaming, beaming money between Palm Pilot devices, which were all the rage in 1999. X.com is going to be a financial services superstore. It's going to do everything financial under the sun, mortgages, checking accounts, savings, stocks, all of it. Eventually what happens is they both find a bit of success with a very specific product. And that very specific product is emailing money, being able to send money from one email account to another email account simply and easily. And part of why they have success is because of the, is because of a viral marketing strategy 
on the Kinfinity side, the, the real kind of champion and the thinking behind viral marketing came from a gentleman named Luke Nosick. And Luke is a really, really interesting character. I had the great fortune of interviewing him and doing long interviews with him. When he was in college, Luke had stumbled on a case study about the success of Hotmail. I think people on this, on this call probably remember, or maybe even some of you still use Hotmail. Um, so he stumbled on the case study for how Hotmail succeeded. And it was written by these two investors, Steve Jurvetson and Tim Draper. And he reads this and they actually, I believe they are the first to connote, to use the connotation viral marketing, meaning marketing that's like a virus. So he has this like in his head, he's like viral marketing, he's like been reading this paper and PayPal's just getting started. They're trying to think about how to market this way, right? What Hotmail did that was brilliant was that at the bottom of every free Hotmail email account, it said, get your free email account. And so every email you sent became a piece of marketing for Hotmail, the company. He submitted this idea, this thought process to memory, and he's thinking about like, what do you do if you create a payment system from scratch? There are other payment systems at the time. What do they do? They give away free money. So you join Beans or you join Flues and you get 10 Beans or you get 100 Flues or whatever, right? And he says, well, we, we could just give money away. That makes sense. Meaning if I sign up 10K, he gets 10, you know, he gets 10 new dollars in his account. But the way to really supercharge this is if he successfully signs up, I should also get $10 for signing him up. Meaning where that the company is actually giving money away and incentivizing giving money away. It's a double-sided incentive. That happens on the Confinity side. And Luke is a big part of the architecture there. He's really thinking a lot about how to do that. You can imagine that particularly for like college students, the idea of free money just by creating email addresses is a very popular idea, which is why they jokingly call this the biggest transfer of venture capital funding to college students in human history. On the x.com side, they arrive at a very similar concept. In fact, they, they give away more money. And someone who was on the team said to me, you know, Elon would always talk about how if you signed up in that day for like a new bank account with, I don't know, Chase Bank, they'd give you a free toaster. And so, free toaster, why don't we just give you free money? And then he also, Elon had this thing about you need to incent the referrer and the referee, meaning, again, both sides. That is how the initial incentives work to boost the viral marketing. That's sort of phase one. And then there is a phase two, but I'll, I'll pause for a second to let you kind of dive in. If you... Yeah, absolutely. That, that is such a great point. Uh, in incentivizing not, not just you to refer me to the platform, but also incentivizing me. And then if I go and um, uh, refer someone else to the platform, I get another $10 and that person gets another $10 as well, right? So you, you can immediately see how this thing uh, literally spreads like a virus uh, across the network uh, ju just through uh, th these kinds of uh, uh, initiatives to, to give free money to people to sign on more, more and more people. And and the other thing that you mentioned in in this answer was uh, when when you talked about um, this this whole idea of you know that there was this company uh, Confinity which was trying to send money from one palm pilot to another, and then there was this X dot com which wanted to become this financial superstore. Uh, but really, both of them had a product 
which is sending money uh, through email addresses. But that was not their core product. Uh, Elon Musk did not set out to build a way for people to send uh, money through email, and neither did the Confinity people. So, uh, so, so you. This this is such a valuable lesson when, when you're running a startup. You may want your company to be about a particular vision, a particular product, but then you go put the product in front of customers and they may actually end up using some small side feature of the product that you develop. And that may become the, the main product. So, so if you want to achieve product market fit, you really have to uh, sort of listen to your customers, uh, figure out how your customers are using your products, and then um, uh, double down on what they find most interesting. Uh, and yeah, then, I, uh, uh, go I ahead. Go ahead. Of, I think it's one of the most important and interesting things that I found. And it, the, the, the lesson can sound obvious, but in the book, I obviously go into painstaking detail about how they discovered that they were getting these users where they came from. I would I would offer kind of two additional lessons that I took from this and that you know I think hopefully come through in the book. One is, you know, there's this sort of line about how you should kind of build a company or build a product to solve your own problem. But what's so interesting about PayPal is their first success happens on eBay, an auction website. And these people who create the company early on are not eBay users eBay users find Confinity's PayPal and they find X.com and they use it because it solves a problem for them, which is reconciling auction payments. But it's not like the founders of Confinity or the founders of X.com are busily occupying and, and you know, bidding on auctions and things, trying to figure out like, oh, this is how this, you know, we do auctions better. In fact, Max Levchin did, was, was not happy that eBay was the place where PayPal was successful. He actually tried to block the URL, the IP addresses, so that people couldn't use it uh, at the beginning until many in the company, the board, as well as one particular person, David Sachs, said, no, 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 like, are, we have users. These are customers who want our product. They want us. We don't have to do anything here, like, meaning that they're excited. So I would say one thing is like a lesson that's in the book is sort of sometimes the, the person with the problem can actually find the solution you've built, and that person might not be you. Right, meaning like solving your own problem may not actually be the most valuable thing you've achieved. The second thing I would say is, um, don't run from success. Right. So, so what's so interesting about the success on eBay is it's so unexpected, and there's so much resistance to it. But then eventually, what the company does is it it shifts and basically like puts all of its attention on eBay, like trying to understand every part of the payment process. And so it's, it's almost like one of these things where, you know, once you find that seed group of people who just love the product, like don't ignore that. In fact, sort of run whole hog in that direction. And again, like I don't, I didn't set out to write like a book that was called, you know, how to build a successful startup. Just to be clear, like I, this is not, there's no comprehensive case studies. I didn't compare the success of PayPal to the success of the 15 other startups at the time, I'm telling the story of how PayPal was created, but there are these very valuable lessons, which is, which one of them is, as I just said, once you have a success, kind of like understand the success from beginning to end. One of the stories that I tell in the book is, David Sachs made the entire product team become eBay buyers and sellers. 
as soon as the team decided that eBay was the place where they were going to be successful, they became obsessive eBay users. They would study every single frame of the payment process. And I just thought that was so cool, like that they would dive in that way just mere days or weeks after having that much reluctance. Right, exactly. And and you had this about uh, how the the checkout process uh, on eBay using PayPal, it, it had two screens. And then uh, David Sachs and others figured out a way to um, make that one screen, remove one extra step of friction over there. And so, so th they have so much of focus and so much of obsessive detail that once they determined that, okay, this is the product that people are most excited about, they then go all in behind that product and try to optimize every single aspect of it so that it delivers maximum utility in the shortest possible time and competes with all the other products favorably. Yeah, I think I think that obsessiveness, the way that I know that that was a part of the place was was that people who were on the product team described to me the degree of obsessiveness they had about every single character, every single field, every single point of friction with someone using the product. And so I had this amazing, you know, it's, it's one thing, I think, if, if someone like David Sachs says we were really obsessive about the product, it is quite another when four separate people on the product team describe in vivid detail the act of like building a new payments page for international payments and what currency conversion was going to look like and the enormous debates that went on to try to simplify that process. So I, I, I do think of obsessiveness as something that was a part of the culture of the place. And it is a part of what made the product successful because there wasn't a single thing on that page that wasn't well considered. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, St Steve Jobs is famous for, for, the, for the same kind of obsessiveness. I mean, he, he would obsess over um, and not not just the iPhone, but what what kind of packaging the iPhone comes in, and uh, you know if if a customer wants to open uh, has just bought a new iPhone and they want to open it, what what steps do they have to go through? Do they have to peel off some tape at the side, or what what, what do they have to do to open this particular package? And how do we remove friction in in the packaging of the iPhone? That level of obsessiveness. And uh, it's it's so great to see that these patterns uh, of successful people, like trying to focus on obsessively on every single detail and things like that, they're just generations that you know in investors and uh, business operators can just take away from these these kinds of success. The the other thing I really loved about your your book is uh, it it details this kind of culture that they had at PayPal which is all about solving little puzzles. So uh, Peter Thiel and Max Levchin and all these people, they, they love to pose puzzles to each other. And then um, they, they, they go about, they, they relish solving each other's puzzles. And it, it almost became a little uh, competitive one-upmanship. Can, can I come up with a puzzle that you can't solve? And can you come up with a puzzle that I can't solve? And, and things like that. This, this whole culture uh, evolved around uh, solving these kinds of puzzles and these puzzles played a role in their uh, in, in the newsletter of the company as well uh, it also had uh, variants of various puzzles and things like that uh, so th this particular thing really appealed to me because uh, 
well one uh, i i like to use my twitter account to to post puzzles i i really love solving uh, puzzles and uh, it's it's just a fun way to learn by tinkering with things uh, and the, the the second thing is that your your actually has some examples of the kinds of puzzles that um, uh, paypal employees used to ask each other and the kinds of things they used to ask um to uh to figure out whether someone is a is a good hire or not uh they they would test him with some puzzles these days it's very very common for silicon valley companies uh, you know if you, if you go to do an interview at facebook or google or one of these companies uh they they will ask you um, uh, for some puzzles but really um, in 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 those days um paypal was one of the first companies to actually incorporate this kind of puzzle solving as as part of the culture do you think this really um, sort of helped them and in in what ways did, did this kind of culture help out yeah you know it's it's i'm glad you picked up on it i thought of it as one of the most interesting kind of quirky parts of the of the culture um and and i'll go into a little detail here because i think the details again the details matter um when max levchin and peter thiel first meet they engage over several weeks in in what max i think lovingly calls ultra nerd dates and at these ultra nerd dates uh they will try to challenge each other with puzzles logic problems brain teasers mathematical questions and the i what what they discover is that they have this interest in common and and it's a very specific kind of interest right like it's not every day that i think at least not for me that i get together with my friends and go to a pizza place and toss math problems at each other i it's just not a part of my life i i think i maybe now i wish it was uh, but, but it's not and so you have these two people who are at the epicenter of the company who have that interest on the elon side of the company you know elon was studied physics in college he is very very good at math and he had a mentor when he did his first internship and I found his mentor and I interviewed his mentor his name is Dr. Peter Nicholson. And one of the things Dr. Nicholson said is hey when we were when he was an intern we would do this too we would trade puzzles we would try to try to solve random puzzles we were just hanging out. And I was like well so this must be a part of the place. Then I started to interview a lot of engineers and I started to interview all these people who were were subjected to the puzzles as a part of the interviewing process. PayPal wasn't unique right in being like a company that did puzzles a lot of companies did puzzles what made paypal interesting is that the puzzles weren't just a way that you got into the company they were a part of the culture of the place you every week they would send out a puzzle over the newsletter and you'd get shout outs like in the next newsletter if you got the right answer and emailed it back to the person who sent the newsletter and so i had 5 years of these newsletters and so i have like a ton of puzzles and i could see who was like trying to get the right answer week after week right and right. i i thought of it i thought of it as I, i there are two perspectives on it on the one hand it's a positive thing it does test for a certain love of problem solving almost like a childlike fascination of problem solving max levchin talked about how a lot of these logic problems are actually very base computer science problems they require efficiency and quickness not sort of like brute brute strength uh or brute, brute mental strength the the other the negative part is like maybe you're somebody who has anxiety and when somebody asks you a puzzle like this in an interview you could solve it but your your mental abilities are concealed by your like fear or by anxiety 
And right. so there were there were people. And by the way, I, I had I tried to present a very balanced portrait throughout the book in different moments, like good and bad. You know, I had people say this engineer, Santosh Janardin, said, you know, and actually Eric Klein was the engineer who said, looking back at it, the adult me realizes that we might have scared off good candidates because we posed these puzzles that they could have solved if they were just like pencil paper in their room, but maybe they couldn't solve because they were sitting in front of us trying to solve it live, right? Meaning right. it's sort of different when you're under the hot stage lights there of an interview and you have somebody like Max Levchin throwing you a question about burning ropes and you're like, oh my God, I don't know what to do, right? But at the same time, like it also created, it also attracted people who were good at that kind of problem solving which was about efficiency and about getting to the right answer. I think the other part of it, and this is really important, the culture was competitive, right? So I did find that there was this, this, even in my interviews with them, there was this sense in which like, oh, it's not enough to be right. We have to win. Like I have to be faster or better or come up with a more elegant solution. Right. And this, by the way, is like very different than Claude Shannon, the subject of my last book. I, I think he couldn't have been bothered to compete for something if he, if he, if you had had a gun to his head, right? Um, and so I found this to be a very interesting, the puzzle piece to be a very interesting part of the place. And I wrote a lot about it in the book. And I, I you know, I found it interesting, just an interesting, unexpected thing that was bigger than just a part of the interview process. Absolutely, absolutely. So that, that that's a nice segue into what I want to do now. So th this morning I was talking to Jimmy and I said, you know, we, we have this call in call. Uh, let's make it a little interesting. Uh, so let's let's ask one of these puzzles on air right now, and we are going to open it up to callers. And uh, so when 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 the callers uh, come, so who whoever gets the right, uh, uh, whoever is the first to get the right answer to to this particular puzzle, uh, Jimmy obviously said that he he will send them a, a free copy of the book. Uh, so, so here, here, here's the puzzle. This is actually one of the puzzles that was asked um, in 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 the PayPal newsletter. So, uh, so, so imagine that there's there's a guy called John, and he lives at the bottom of a hill. Okay. So each morning, what he does is uh, he he does a workout. He bicycles up the hill, and then he comes back the exact same route back home. Uh, but the thing is, when he's going uphill. Uh, he he bicycles at uh, at 10 miles per hour, but then when he's coming back downhill, exact same route, uh, he's able to do it at 20 miles per hour because it's downhill. So going uphill, he goes 10 miles an hour. Going downhill, he comes back at 20 miles per hour. The the puzzle is, what what is his average speed during this workout? Uh, so so that 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 is the puzzle. And uh, so so if you guys uh, we're we going to open it up to questions now, and if if you guys want to take take a crack at it. Uh, wh whoever gets it uh, first uh, gets a signed copy uh, of of this book. By the way, as people are figuring it out, I'll I'll add in a little a couple of the thoughts about puzzles. Uh, sure. One funny one funny story came from a gentleman I interviewed whose name is Jack Selby. You know, Jack was um, one of the people on the finance team. It was really important for me. Um, in understanding the story of the company and understanding the history. And, and he was somebody that I, I think every person at PayPal really had a very positive relationship with him. So it was good because he could also open some necessary doors for me. Um, they asked Jack when he was interviewing, he was employee 12 or 13. They asked Jack uh, a puzzle and uh, he was not a, 
he's not an engineer. He's not somebody who, like he was interviewing for comp side job or anything. And he, he said to me roughly in the interview, he said, you know, I just looked at him and said, guys, my strong suit. I'm not going to be able to answer that for you. And if that's a problem, then don't hire me. But I'm telling you right now, like, I don't know the answer to that puzzle question. Right. Uh, and so it was also a place that, you know, he ended up working there for a long time and stayed for, for several years and had a, had a, a successful career there. And so it's not that the puzzles were, uh, were the, the, the acid test. They weren't, they were, you know, they, they, they weren't a deal breaker if you didn't get them right, but they were certainly a part of the place uh, by the same token. You know, it, it, there was a, one of the things I noticed when I was reading the puzzles in the newsletter is that one name came up over and over again as somebody who was always like getting the right answer, was consistently on the like, congratulations to, and that's Rebecca Eisenberg, who was an attorney um, who joined the company in 2001, helps to work on the team that, that takes it public for the IPO. And she's, you know, she's, again, she's a non-engineer, but is like consistently one of the best puzzle solvers in this group. And so it gave me, you know, somebody who's a, a, a more of a humanities and social sciences person, a, a measure of hope for those of us who, uh, who didn't see these as base computer science problems. Uh, absolutely. If, if a lawyer can do it, so can you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so uh, let's, let's start taking callers. Uh, if you have any, any questions for Jimmy, how he did the research in his book, how he got an interview with Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, Go for it, and if you if you have an answer to this puzzle, um, go go for that as well. So I'll I'll take uh, we we'll take the next caller. His name is Saurabh. Hi, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can. I can hear you. Yeah. So the answer is forty by three miles per hour, thirteen point three three. Oh, that's uh, that's beautiful. <laughs> you, you did get the right answer. Uh, can can you tell us how how you did it? Oh yeah. So you said average speed. So average right. speed is like uh, total distance upon total time. So let's say uh, going uphill or like one side distance is x. So going up is x. Going down is x. So going up time t1 is x by 10 because like speed is equal to distance by time. T2 right. is equal to x by 20. Okay. Uh, so total distance is 2x divided by total time, which is x by 10 plus x by 20. That's, so, that's perfect. So, yeah, so this, perfect. this is the... Uh, so, so the average speed is not just uh, 10 plus 20 divided by 2, which would be 15. The average right. speed is actually uh, less than 15. It's 13.33 yes. uh, uh, miles per hour. And that, that, that is the point of this puzzle. And there, there is a financial equivalent to this puzzle as well. So if, if you have a one stock which is trading at a PE of 10, and you, you have a second stock which is trading at a PE of 20, and you build a portfolio which is equal weighting these two stocks, what's the PE ratio of the portfolio? Now, it's, it's not 15. Uh, it is actually this exact same kind of calculation. And uh, the P ratio of the portfolio is 13.33, exactly the same as the average speed here. So, uh, so, so the, the, this this puzzle has sort of a financial ap application as well. The, the the broader concept is called the harmonic mean. So, so the, the arithmetic mean of 10 and 20 is 10 plus 20 divided by 2, which is uh, 15. But the harmonic mean of uh, 10 and 20 
is 2 divided by 1 over 10 plus 1 over 20, uh, which works out to 13.33. So, so uh, you, you, you got your, uh, you, you got it exactly right. So if you, if, if you send us your, uh, your address uh, through Twitter DMs or something, something like that, uh, we'll, we'll make sure you get uh, your, your, your copy of the book signed. Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you for organizing this. Like I got hooked into this conversation and for past one hour, I'm trying to learn more about Sanjay and Anita Bharga. <laughs> it's, it's good to know. See, I'm from Delhi itself. I am living in the United States and like you don't know who is your next door neighbor, right? And they are doing amazing things. Thank you. Absolutely. Do you have any other questions for, for Jimmy? Uh, not right now. Thank you so okay, much for sure. No, congrats on getting the, the puzzle right. It, it, I was, I had another moment where I'm thinking to myself, like, uh, there's a process, there's a part of the book process that is very, uh, fulfilling and re reestablishing these puzzles in the culture. I did not, you can imagine that when I started out to write a book about the origin of PayPal, I did not think that six years later, I would be t talking to a group of people and we would be actively trying to solve one of the puzzles. But I think I can say with some confidence that this is probably the thing that would make Ma Max Levchin like happiest about the fact that the book is being done. Because I can tell you that of all the subjects we covered, of all the facts about his life that are in the book, the thing that he wanted to make sure that I got correct were the three puzzles that I included in the pages of the book. <laughs> wow and, nice <laughs> and so so it, it's very appropriate that in one of like the first long conversations that we're having about this that the puzzles are a centerpiece because again from a writer's perspective the puzzles are interesting material they just make for a, a cultural component that helps people to understand the story but these are actual problems and they're fun and they're they're challenging and they're engaging and for, for Max Levchin, it's sort of a way of life, right? And so it was really funny because when I was doing my fact checking, he sent me this email saying, we had gone through a section and he, he sent me an email saying, I think your puzzle, I think you duplicated a puzzle that Peter and I shared. It was the same puzzle. We just, you phrased it the same way. And I, I just remember <laughs> thinking, you know, I remember thinking to myself like, wow, man, like I wrote about your grandmother in the book and the thing that you're like <laughs> making sure I get right <laughs> is the puzzle, you know? So it's really, yeah. this is like fun for me because I'm like, okay, great. The puzzles are alive again. Wow, nice. Uh, absolutely. And and I think you, you will enjoy the book, Saurabh, because uh, there, there are uh, a few other puzzles in the book, you know, uh, and these puzzles all come with some historical context. Like, uh, you know, th this is the puzzle that Peter Thiel asked Max Levchin when they first met and, and things like that. Uh, so so it's, it's all uh, super interesting. I, th I think you'll love that. I think, you know, as we think about also, like, I know that your listeners come to you partly to understand businesses in general, right? Meaning like really diving into like what makes a business tick and how do you understand financial statements and what does these terms mean? Um, I think one of the things that I learned while doing this book that I'm not sure I totally appreciated is, you know, you can learn a lot just through cold emails, interviews, and, and sort of determined Googling, right? Um, like, it's why I admire what you do 
in kind of providing these concepts because I had to learn a lot of the these terms and like really dive in and like understand like what what really is an IPO. There's sort of what CNBC says an IPO is, but what fundamentally like why would you take a company and turn it from private to public, right? Right. And and I found that like people are are phenomenally generous if you send them a short email and ask for just a little bit of time and then show some respect for that time. I I really I can't emphasize enough. Like you have a community of people that listen to you and read you who are learners. And I think like uh, in my mind, like I, there was sort of a certain amount I could learn by reading and a certain amount I could learn by Googling and by like looking at books and research papers. But I mean, sort of value per minute, these, the interviews that I did with the ex PayPal employees, you know, they taught me so much, but they really also taught me like, you can really learn anything like with enough effort and time. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I'm a computer scientist, um, as, as you know. So I, I did not, um, you know, I, I don't have a formal background or uh, formal training in finance or investing or anything like that. So a, a lot of what I learned is just by asking people questions and then um, they, they would suggest some book or some resource and then going back and following up on that. Um, that that's, that's basically how I learned. And uh, it's it's such a great way. And if you, if you have, and that, that part, part of, this show, why I'm so excited about this show is, is because I get to have guests like that on. You know, I, I can call you and we, we can talk for an hour about PayPal and the culture and how how, uh, how viral marketing works. And you, you learn so many things by talking to somebody like you who's written a book about this subject. And, you know, so, so we, we had Professor uh, Aswad Damodaran on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago and we, we, we learned so much from him. So, so this whole idea of, interviewing people and uh, asking them simple questions and trying to learn from them, that is a super effective way to learn. And that that's really something that really gets me excited about, about this particular show. Yeah, I would, I would, I, let me go a step further just to offer some resources, right? Because I think that's part of this is I wrote a book and people can learn the story of PayPal by reading the book, but it's probably more interesting for you, for me to answer the question, you know, okay, so like, how do you find someone? Like, how do you actually dig up you know, people's info or how do you know who to contact? Right. Um, yeah. How do you stalk people? <laughs> <laughs> That's the, yeah, exactly. The short way of saying that is how do you stalk people? Well, I'll, you know, I'll offer a couple of the tools I used. So one tool that I found to be very effective was a tool called rocket reach. Um, so for me, rocket reach was like, it links up to people's like social media profiles and it's a really, it's a, it's legal. It's not like these tools, you know, they're not like, like these tools are like publicly available internet tools. So rocket reach was a really good way of finding whatever the most up-to-date email is for somebody. You have a pretty high degree of accuracy there, like in terms of like actually finding those individuals and then being able to contact them. Right. The second thing that worked really well for me is I think it's like email verifier or email checker. You can just Google it. And it will tell you if an email is is valid or is invalid, right? And so I had the ability then to not just like randomly email. I was like emailing emails with a relatively high degree of, okay, this might work. Um, and then the third tool that really helped me is, you know, I did long interviews. Like my interviews with any one of these people, sometimes I remember I interviewed Luke Nosek once and my interview was four and a half, five hours long, right? Like this is like a right. long interview. There's a service that I that I love called otter, otter.ai, otter AI. And otter is a transcription service that is not as expensive as these like by the minute human transcription services. 
And what it allowed me to do was take the audio that I had captured and turn it into words very, very quickly and with a relatively high degree of accuracy. Because then when I was listening to the interview again, I could also see the words and sort of almost start to imagine like what they were going to look like on the page. And so some of these tools, like they helped me learn, like they helped me learn, they helped me find people that I wanted to talk to. I would, I would also argue that it's wonderful to have the opportunity to interview the people at the very top, the people that are household names. It was a real privilege to sit down with Max and with David and with Peter and everybody else and Elon. I, I learned more, I think, interviewing employees who did not expect to ever hear from someone like me. And so I would also say that, you know, when you're trying to understand a company, it's sort of one thing to understand the public statements of the CEO, but there's also, or understand anything for that matter. It's, it's important to understand what the person at the top thinks, but I would actually argue that the most valuable material often comes from people who maybe were only at the company for a year or were in a customer service role, you know, cause they're directly interfacing with users. I interviewed customer service agents. I interviewed fraud analysts. I actually interviewed investors who almost invested in these companies, Confinityandx.com, but then decided that they weren't going to. I wanted to talk to them about why they didn't invest. And so I would just, I would just say that, you know, I'm not a tech writer. I don't, I'm not like attached to some famous publication. I just sent out hundreds upon hundreds of emails and tried to talk to as many people as would talk to me, you know, often with warm introductions, but often it was just cold emails. And I don't think that, and I would say that the people are going to look at the book and think, oh, well, he, he succeeded because he had access to, you know, Elon Musk. Yes, in, to one, in one sense, which is I could understand the earliest part of his thinking about the company, but it was so valuable to spend three hours talking to Anita and Sanjay Bhargava because random depo- the story I told you about random deposit is not going to come from Elon. That is only right. going to come from Sanjay Bhargava. And so th- that's what I mean to say is just like cast a wide net when you're looking for information. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. That's such a valuable point that you made that you, you learn so much by not just talking to people at the top, uh, but also by talking to people who are actually in the trenches doing the actual work. And you, you can learn so much by, by talking to uh, the, the, these kinds of people uh, who, who you, you may never talk to otherwise. And so just to uh, ask you a follow-up question on that. So you, you, you email these people and these are obviously super busy people, uh, people. Uh, uh, whether it's Peter or Elon Musk or the, the, these people are super busy. And let, let's say you found an email address for uh, for Elon Musk or whoever, and uh, you want to send these guys an email to you for 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 a few hours. And a few hours is like a very big chunk of time for for people at that level. So do, do you have any tips for uh, how how to compose a, a cold so a, a warm, so you you can sort of get in touch through uh, a warm email has greater chances of success, but a, a cold email, like o- over writing so many emails for and trying to research so many people, do, do you have any tips to share for you know what should be in a cold email, what shouldn't be in a cold email, what should be the subject line, wh- whatever, any any tips that you found useful? Yeah. I, I should freely admit that with a lot of the people at the top, I would almost always try to get warm introductions um, because it was just, you can imagine how crowded their inboxes are. And right. 
And but but I also never asked any of the quote unquote sort of big names for too many introductions because I wasn't there to turn them into my switchboard operator. Right. And so I was always judicious in asking for introductions and very careful that I never felt I never wanted them to see my name in their inbox and think, oh, my God, there's that guy with that book again. Right. (laughs) That's a bad reaction, which means you have to limit the the number of emails you send the amount of communication you you filter through you have to be very careful with everything from thank you notes to follow-ups because these are busy people with no time and they have very crowded inboxes you have to respect that i have i always sort of operated from a principle of i am talking to the busiest people on earth don't waste their time right right so for the folks at the top warm introductions were almost always my the kind of name of the game for cold emails you know I, I would say a few things really helped. Uh, one is brevity, right? So keeping emails relatively brief. Um, the second is establishing upfront like what I was there to do and why I was reaching out in the first place, meaning not a lot of preamble, not just keeping things kind of brief. I would generally talk, like I'd give a line or two about what the project's intentions were, like why was I doing this? Um, And then I always said, like, I'm happy to connect in whatever way makes sense for you. Right. And I'd sort of end with some relatively nice sort of sign off. Right. But keeping things short, being friendly, uh, being clear really matters. Um, I was also very careful with like my punctuation. Like you don't want too many exclamation points because I wanted them to think like this person's a professional. Right. Um, But but more, I would say more important than the cold email was the work I did before I would even send an email. So let me get into that because it's actually like it affects the psychology of the email. So I'll give you an example. I believe I had sent a cold email to John Malloy, who was the earliest outside money into what was then known as Confinity. But before I sent John an email, I watched every there weren't many, but I watched every interview that John had given that was on YouTube and Vimeo and like one other service. And I remember just like trying to like get into his head and think like, okay, let me see what he says when he's asked questions by other people so that maybe at the margins it might affect my note to him, right? What do I emphasize? What do I not emphasize? So I I did that preparatory work before almost every cold email for someone significant because I found that it really helped me write better notes. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work and like I sort of say it out loud and I feel frankly a little embarrassed. (laughs) Like people on the call might be thinking like, oh my God, you can't even send an email without doing like 15 hours of work. But the truth is, like, I had a high hit rate because I did 15 hours of work, right? Right. And so so that's, like, one thing is, like, the preparatory work. The second is the actual quality of the email. But the third thing is actually the most important. What I just described is probably 20 to 40% of the total labor. Here's the real labor, which is I always respected whatever format, whatever time, and whatever day the individual wanted to have the first discussion, meaning... If they were in San Francisco, I was going to San Francisco. If they wanted to have the discussion tomorrow in San Francisco, I was on the next flight from New York to San Francisco. If they wanted to have a phone call first, great. Some people sent me questionnaires to to understand what I was doing and why and what my motivations were. I would fill out the questionnaires. I had, I, I mean, I, I went through multiple different kinds of tests with people, but I always operated from the premise that they were giving me the most valuable thing that they have, which is their time. And it was my responsibility to like respect that by just, just get on the flight, just take whatever time they give you. And I, I mean, I, I have a hundred stories about 
having to like take red eyes and like rearrange things and having something happen and having to rejigger my entire schedule. Right. But I thought that, and I never let them into that. I never let them know, but I'll give you another small example. I would always show up to every interview, particularly with like the super busy people. I would show up and wait in the parking lot for like an hour to an hour and a half before the interview. Because I never wanted a situation where I was like stuck in traffic or like the Uber had a flat tire and I wasn't able to do the interview. So I, I think I way over indexed on that part of it, which is just like make remember that they're the ones doing you the favor and your job is to make this as smooth as humanly possible for them. Meaning like don't don't be disrespectful. Take the first time they give you and then don't expect to get three hours. I always anticipated that I would get between a half hour to 45 minutes. And I had questions on a piece of paper, not on a laptop, a piece of paper that would only last for 30 to 45 minutes. And then I had like the, if it goes long, and then I had like the next set of questions, right? And so I I had a pretty, pretty systematic way of going about these. I never looked at my phone during interviews, but I would use my phone for recording. I never had my computer out. It was like a whole process that I did just to, just so, so for my, it was actually, it was even more for me than for them. I don't think that they cared that I did all these, this work, but the point was that I felt like that was how I was like preparing for like, it was like a Rocky montage. Like I was preparing for like a boxing match. Right. Right. And it was this thing of like, okay, go in. I'm there. I've read everything they've said. I've listened to everything they've ever said for 10 years. I know exactly which questions I'm there to ask. And I'm not there to make chit chat and I'm not there to make friends. I'm there because I'm writing this book and I think what they did is important. That I went into more detail than you might have wanted there, but it hopefully gives people some ideas for how you might approach even the busiest, most, you know, uh, successful people. You know, they want to talk to people who respect their time. Absolutely, absolutely. All such valuable points. Thank you so much for sharing them. Yes, uh, the, the the amount of effort that you put into it really shines through. Every little aspect of this, you know, trying to find out more about the people before you even send them an email, doing some background research on them and um, uh, trying to make it as convenient as possible for the other person, trying to remove as much friction as possible. This is almost like the, the David Sachs uh, uh, anecdote about how they would pour over the the... the sign up pages for PayPal and try to remove friction every step of the way. This is some something like that. You you remove friction, you you try to make sure that they are as comfortable as possible. You don't take their time for granted. It's it's all good. It's, it's actually it's a it's great funny answer. That you mentioned, it's funny that you mentioned David Sachs. So I'll tell you a curveball that happened in my first interview with David Sachs. So, you know, he's he's he you know he he's a smart guy. He doesn't suffer fools and he doesn't have any time. And so and, you know, the idea of someone writing a book about PayPal, this experience that he lived, uh, he was, you know, he's like, okay, you got to prove this to me. And I, we had our first interview. He happened to be in, in the city that I was in. And I had done all my preparation. I had watched all these old videos. And I knew exactly what I was doing. And I knew, and I, what I didn't expect is that he had taken that trip with a colleague of his, Mark Woolway, who also worked at PayPal who was in the room when I walk in, Mark Woolway is there. And I'm like, oh my God, I was going to email Mark Woolway later. What do I do now? And so we start talking, right? And, and, and they were great about it. They were really great about it. And I, at one point, I, had to, I sort of kicked off and I said, 
Mark, I'll just be honest with you. You were on my list to interview, and I have a Google Doc that is called Mark Woolway Questions. So I have separate <laughs> questions for you, but I would like to I, – I'm so glad that you're here, but if it's okay with you, the questions that I have for you, I might ask at a different time, and then I can just let you and David kind of like remember stories from that time and respond to things that I'm asking. And he was – he like laughed, and he was like, no, no, that's totally fine. I didn't – you didn't know I was going to show up, so that's okay. And then I followed up. I went and I sat with Mark individually and we had long interviews and fact checking and everything else. And so, you know, you do get curveballs from time to time. But I think that um, I think that this is I didn't know any other way to do this. I was not somebody who knew computer science. I was not somebody that came out of technology. So the only thing that I could do was basically compensate for ignorance with endurance, uh, which is to say, like, I would just watch every damn video until I had heard everything they'd said about this company. And then I would come in and ask questions that they hadn't already answered. Wow. This, this reminds me of the saying, you know, luck, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And, you know, you, you had this, uh, this enormous amount of preparation. And it's, it's because of the preparation that you had a Google Doc there uh, for this guy who you didn't even know is going to be at the interview. And then um, he, he gave you... Uh, uh, so much of his time, uh, partly because of all the preparation that you had already done. So this, uh, these are all su such valuable points. Th thank you so much for sharing this. I have a question, uh, if it is fine. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. So it looks like, uh, Jimmy, you do a lot of preparation. Uh, I would like to extend this concept further. So this is in regards to your career or job or your work. Uh, if, if we talk about life on a single day, uh, let's say a male, uh, he's a father, he's a husband, he has friends, he has family. And then as we say in life, we have to balance health, wealth and happiness. So how do you balance all those things? So let's say if I'm doing too much uh, on my work or job, I might ignore my family. Or let's say if I'm working late night, I may miss my workout in the morning. So the overall life, as I have figured it out, I think it's health, wealth and happiness and finding that balance. I, I struggle a lot in switching between these tasks. Right. Are you getting what I'm trying to say? Yeah. 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 Basically, how did I balance this crazy project with the other things in my life? Yeah. And in general. Right. So because yeah. you want to do this thing, let's say, let's take the example of Warren Buffet up to 100 years. Right. So. So there, there's like. The, 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 the honest honest answer is not a satisfying answer and it's not actually an answer that I would recommend but I I'm gonna just give the honest answer because it's the truth um, I was not balanced for the last five and a half years um, I've worked every Thanksgiving every Christmas every New Year's Day for five years on this book I have skipped friends weddings I skipped my own I once canceled my own birthday party to get source material for the book 
I woke up every day for seven days a week. And this was the first thing that I worked on. And not every one of those days was fun or enjoyable. Um, I had to, I did the book while working full time. So that was what I needed to do because if I worked on it from four o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock in the morning, I could get my work done on it and then still work on my other, my paying work. Right. And, and so it, and then on the weekends, what was nice was that I could go from like, I didn't have that other work I had to do. So I could go from like 4am to like 4pm or 5pm. I didn't Mm -hmm. abandon everything. I mean, I didn't neglect my duties as a dad. You know, I kept like, I have a very small number of friends who was, I still make sure I'm a good friend. Um, and I tried to make sure I slept every night, but I think that all the things that people enjoy in life, I basically gave up to do this. So like, I didn't take vacations until like kind of late last year. I didn't do any of that. I, there were no weekends. Um, there were no, like there was very little of that in my life. And I, I will say, let me offer three reflections on it. Cause it sounds nuts. Like the first is that it is nuts. Like it's not a, like a normal way to live. It's not like you, nobody, nobody actually think actually should live that way. The second is I felt at a certain point that this project was so interesting and so worthwhile and so needed to be told that I felt like a sense of obligation to it where like that work didn't feel like every day I was getting up and like, Oh my God, I can't believe I have to do this again. There were definitely days like that, but there were probably more days that felt like, no, this is important. And if I don't do this, you know, these people could die and then no one's going to capture this story. And then what, you know, so I had this story in my head about like why it was important to do the project. The third thing I would say is, um, create, there are creative people in my life who can describe exactly the obsession I just told you, but it's in art or it's in music or it's in computer science or it's in whatever it's in. And so there is a way in which like the creative part of this takes over your life, but it's not a bad takeover. It's not a hostile takeover, right? It's actually (laughs) this like wonderful thing that shapes your entire life in an amazing way. Every decision I made for about a half decade had a very simple calculus. Is this going to help me do the PayPal book better or is it not going to help me do the PayPal book better? And if, if the answer was no, then I didn't do it. And, and that sounds really like crazy. Like I understand why that would sound weird, but I have friends who have that same question for whatever they're working on. And it was clarifying. It was wonderful. Every day I got to wake up and dive into the minds of some of the most interesting people in the world. Even if it was just me sitting on my couch, like reading something they wrote or typing something, I got to understand them and learn these details that I could then play back to readers. And I felt really grateful to do that but I don't have good advice on how you do that in a balanced way. I think with my next project, whatever it is, I will try to do it in a more balanced way. Like hopefully I won't have to do it like while working full time or whatever, but I don't have a good or satisfying answer to the question. I just know that when you find something you love this much and when you believe in it this much, you allow it and it wonderfully takes over your entire life. Yeah, I can totally relate that uh, it's it's no longer job for you. You you just love your work, and you you are thinking about it like day in and day out. But now, if you look back, you you realize, oh, I miss the weekends, or maybe my wife wanted to go for a movie, or for a hike, or for for shopping, and 
but i didn't go there so it's a it's a satisfying feeling in a way because now this project is out but on the other side there are definitely lot of things that you compromise and going forward you'll try to improve i believe you I do know. you do i would i would say though a couple of things on how to manage it right because maybe there's somebody listening who has this in their life um mm-hmm. I, mean, i think i see charlie on here i'm sure actually the platform itself is this for him potentially <laughs> um <laughs> and so so i would say the following one i have a, a number of friends who have whatever i just described this sort of obsession they have this in their lives they are my closest yeah. friends and the reason is because they understand that it's okay if they don't hear from me for 3 months because i'm doing kind of my work that i love and they're doing their thing and when we connect it's wonderful and it's like the best having understanding uh, friends at this level friends who don't guilt you if they haven't heard from you is definitely one way to 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 like like make sure that this doesn't become corrosive to your entire life right i have mm-hmm. a small group of people that i write about in the acknowledgments of the book and they were they were essential to me being able to finish this because they understood that i wasn't going to be there even if i was sitting with them my mind was on paypal right my mind was yes. somewhere else and that was yes. okay that was like that that was a part that was baked into our friendship it was the the cost of 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 the friendship right um yes. and they were willing to pay that and i was too for them so that's kind of one thing the second thing is um you know what can seem like drudgery like waking up every day and writing a book about a company that was created 20 years ago to a lot of people it sounds like homework right i cannot tell you the joy that i had sometimes at 4:30 in the morning when i went back and made some discovery about something that elon had done at queens university when he was a a freshman or a sophomore and i was the first person to see it in i don't know 25 years like i would i was so happy i mean i was beyond happy right i was ecstatic because it was like being in indiana jones like it was like i had discovered something from like some lost civilization right so <laughs> it was hard but i also want to emphasize like those hours early in the morning were some of the happiest moments of my life for the last 5 years and then obviously like seeing the book come together has been great and seeing that it's gotten a great reception has been nice but there is something about the joy of creativity that people should not underestimate even if what looks to them from the outside is like oh my god this dude's nuts like why would anybody do this right it's because yeah. i got a thrill that i i don't think i could adequately put into words Yeah thank Absolutely. you thank you for explaining it so, such yes. such valuable points there yeah. uh, so, so i i really love two things that you said in particular one one is the the importance of having a mission in life as opposed to just a job now you, when when you feel that kind of uh, involvement with with a project that it becomes your mission in life to tell the story and if it's a creative mission so much so the better it it just uh, uh, completely takes over your life in a, in a good way and it is such a positive thing to have in your life to 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 live for something to have an objective uh, that every day you wake up uh, you try to advance that objective having that mission is is just so great uh, yeah. and and the second thing is uh, it reminds me of what warren buffett often says which is that he has this beautiful saying he says intensity is the price of excellence So if if you want to be excellent at something if you want to do a thorough job at at something you have to give it all you have uh, you have to 
focus on it with a with a maniacal focus and intensity that is how you become the best in the world at at whatever your chosen um, objective is and so so intensity is the price of excellence that 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 is uh, that, that's something warren buffett lo- loves to say and this really shines through in in your uh, answer to that question i think charlie is calling and i'm really curious to hear what he has to say if he has something to say because uh, oh sure cause... Uh, I'll, I'll make charlie the the next caller <laughs> hey jimmy hey tenke um, Jimmy, I well, first off, this has been a, a terrific discussion going into um, a lot of the kind of the, the unsexy stuff behind the scenes. And um, Jimmy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like what you've been describing just in your past comment about those early mornings being some of the the, uh, you know, those those are just great moments is that flow state. And you hear a lot of athletes talk about flow state but it's not only something in sport it's also in in would you how how would you get into that flow state if you would get into that flow state uh was there anything like you talked about the preparatory work of interviews would you do any any preparation to try to reach that state um would love to hear hear your your uh, your comments and ex- experience going through that. Yeah, um, I, I I'm happy to share, and I also want to be respectful of, of 10K's time and of everyone's time. So 10K, you can steer after I'll, I'll give a, an answer to this question. Um, so oh, I I love being here. Don't don't worry. About <laughs> okay, good. I never know if like some of this stuff is interesting you're, or if you're it just dropping like... so much wisdom on here. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I mean, happy to continue this for. It's, it's funny because I like I'm feeling like the heat of embarrassment at the raving. Like I saw like, you know, in, in one version of this, these are like the ravings of a total lunatic. Right. And I'm saying this stuff out loud. And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, people should really not take this as advice because this is also like not a pleasant way to like, you know, live a life. But here's what to, to answer Charlie's question about the flow state. Um, so. It, it's not something that I think I thought about consciously because uh, I think sometimes like if you think about flow, at least for me, this is just for me. If I think about flow state consciously, then I get self-conscious about whether I am in flow state or am I not or am I there enough or whatever. But I can describe a, a few moments when it happens. And I can also describe like how I approached the mornings for the book. They, they weren't perfect and not every day was like this. But I actually had some like pretty significant like like structures in place in order to get started on PayPal, despite knowing that it was going to be painful and knowing that it was like 4.15 in the morning and I like had to make it work. Um, so one of the things that I did is that I would start not actually by reading anything PayPal related, and I would definitely not dive into like email or phone stuff. Um, I actually would pick up a couple of books that I read and reread and reread obsessively over the whatever, at least three years, probably closer to four. And they were books that I thought were like the kind of style that I was going for, but they weren't so beyond my capacity as a writer that I couldn't reach them. So the, the, the term I had in my head for this was like, I was giving myself like a running start. So for 10 minutes, exactly 10 minutes, not a minute less, not a minute more. For 10 minutes, for about a year, I read every morning, I read The Everything Store by Brad Stone. Um, or I read this great Tiger Woods biography, or I read The Perfect Store by Adam Cohen. 
and and I have reasons behind the three books, but let's use the Tiger Woods one as an example, because a lot of people on the call might be like, wait, that's a book about a golfer. It's not a book about a startup. Like, who are you? <laughs> and the, the reason is because the Tiger Woods biography that I'm talking about was so detailed. I mean, just like details that blew me away. The book opens by the, the authors found the person who dug the grave of Tiger Woods's father and they interviewed him. That's how the book starts. And, and it's at that level of detail for another 375 pages. So I always thought to myself like, okay, I'm doing a book about PayPal and there's a boring, not detailed way to tell that story. Or you go and find Sanjay Bhargava in India and you interview him, right? And, like, and he's my like, that's my grave digger. That's the guy, that's the level of detail I want to get to. I would read that book or, you know, the other two for 10 minutes and then I would get going. And the idea was always like trying to find an example where I was reading it. And I was like, I could do this. And it gave me something to ease into the process of actually writing the book that wasn't just like firing up a, a blank page and starting. Right. And that was why I called it the running start in just for myself. But like that was what I did every morning. It was like one of the things. But I would say the, to, to the more specific answer to your question about flow state. I think flow state takes time. And what I mean by that is I was more likely to achieve it on the weekends, on Saturday and Sunday, in hour four, hour five, or hour six of writing than I was like right away. And that might've been like, just because of the right combination of caffeine and like freedom and the weekends were a little less stressful for finishing the book. But I remember there were days when it would be light out when I started and darkness by the time I finished working on the book and I hadn't even noticed that the time went by. And I knew that that was flow state. I sort of knew it like after the fact. I was like, oh, I was probably in flow. Um, but I wasn't like, I didn't have any specific way of, of achieving it other than to like get past our, let's say hour three or hour three and a half. And then at that point I was, I could tell, I was like, oh my God, I really, I really have this. I think the other thing that helps me um, is that during a lot of the writing, I would listen to the same song on repeat over and over and over again. So it wasn't the same song during the entire writing process, but for long stretches at a time, like weeks and weeks and weeks, I'd only listen to one song, just one song over and over and over and over again. And I've had other writer friends who do this, but I did find that like, there's something about that that like actually works again. It might be weird. It's a little boring, but I did find that like, it also set me up for, okay, this is the thing we're doing now. Right. And so that, that helped as well. Um, I, I think that flow state's very powerful, but I think that most of the people who get into it can't actually give you like a like a checklist for how they get into it. It just kind of happens after you spent enough time doing something. Yeah, no, that, those, those are good points. My, uh, my music recently has been Gregorian chants. That seems to get me into a good, a good, uh, a good state, but um, thanks guys. Thanks for, for uh, doing this conversation. It's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this idea of starting with a book uh, with somebody who has done exactly what you want to do. And, um, you know, for example, this Tiger Tiger Woods biography about, you know, you, you want to interview people at that level of detail. So you start with someone who has already done that and read that guy for 10 minutes just to get insp inspiration to, to go and do your work. That's, that's just such, such a beautiful idea. Thank you. It so also, much for it also, that. by the way, even for, for any endeavor, your models, your models become powerful teachers. So the everything store by Brad Stone taught me my obsessive reading and rereading of it taught me what questions to ask. Like it taught me things that 
I, I should make sure to include a great example. Why are companies named what they are named? Brad Stone in his book does a big, long exploration for how Amazon got its name. Because like Amazon's an interesting, like, why was it named Amazon? It's explored. They, they wanted book. to call it uh, relentless.com. Well, if you go, if you go to your web browser and you type in relentless.com, it'll redirect you to Amazon. Exactly. Um, exactly. And so, so I did the same look at like, what, why did, why PayPal, why X.com, why FieldLink, and why Confinity? I looked at all the, and then I found the person who came up with the PayPal name and she brought the slides for the PayPal name with her when I did my interview. And so that's why I was able to get that detail. My model, my models taught me the right questions to ask. And I think that can be true, by the way, like in almost any creative endeavor, when you study something enough, like you will find little things about it. They're like, oh, Oh, that's, I see what you did. You know, it's like you sort of see the little things that other people might miss. Absolutely, absolutely. And your, your book also has a lot of detail about uh, how exactly the name PayPal came to be and the, the effect of the two Ps. And I, I believe it's called a plosive uh, and, and wh why that's a good thing, why uh, having an alliterative effect in the name is, is a good thing. And it, it just gets into... Uh, so much of detail and the, the science behind how you select a name for your product. Uh, I, I, I very much enjoyed reading that, that part of the book as well. Well, I'm glad it was, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that this, this madness was worth something. <laughs> worth something. Well, I, I, I don't know if it was worth anything. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what matters then. <laughs> Uh, so, so th thank you so much. And it, uh, does does anyone else have a question for uh, for Jimmy? Uh, okay, looks looks like no. Uh, th thank you all so much for showing up, and thanks especially to Jimmy. This was uh, such an inspiring, such a motivational uh, kind of uh, session. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful details. And uh, so, um, what, what what is the best place? Uh, to 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 get this book, um, is, is is Amazon good or uh, do you prefer yeah. people to get it somewhere else? I think I think you know Amazon or wherever you prefer to buy books, but Amazon generally is pretty easy. Plus they do you know they have Kindle, they have Audible, so if you want to listen to it, um, and I, I hope people enjoy it, and I'd I'd love to hear from people as they're they're reading it, listening to it. It's always you know you you sort of have these you put these books out, and like you said, it's like tough to get immediate feedback, right? Um, right. So I'd love to hear from people. I'm pretty easily reachable on, on Twitter or, you know, you can find my email address and, and email me. Um, but I really appreciate you taking time to, to read the book and for asking these questions and for hosting. Like what I would say is sort of like a, almost like it's like a learning community, right? Around money and around these concepts that everyone says they understand. But like if you were to really sort of scratch into the surface, it, it, you have to go a step further to really understand them. So I really appreciate you taking time to do this. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Uh, so, so thanks a lot to everybody for showing up. And thank you, Jimmy. Uh, this, this was lovely. And uh, folks, please get Jimmy's book. You, you saw the amount of detail and the amount of passion that Jimmy has for this book. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's so great. So, and, and the book uh, will not disappoint you. Just uh, go get it. All right. So see, see you guys on, on Sunday for the, for the usual show. Bye-bye.